Well, uh, this morning's message is only for a certain group of people. I know, uh, I know my job is to, supposed to talk broadly to everyone, but not this morning. Uh, you, there's going to be some of you this is for and others it's not. And uh, so I guess if it's not for you, you can just enjoy. Just enjoy yourself. Think about something else. But, uh, but for those of you that may fit in this category, and let me say this before I tell you the category, uh, as you would fit in this category and maybe feel some conviction, here's the good news. We get to end with communion. So any conviction of sin today, you just get to end by saying, oh, Jesus, I remember your forgiveness for me. Uh, as you're thinking about that, let me introduce myself to you. And I think we're going to turn on some lights in a moment so I can actually see you as well. But my name's Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor. And welcome, Harbor Online, to you. Great to see you this morning as well. So here's, uh, here's the category this morning. Here's who this message is for. You'll see it on the screens. I made a slide. Church people who don't love Jesus. Church people who don't love Jesus. Jesus. Now, some of you may think I've made a mistake there in that. The message is supposed to be for church people who love Jesus, right? Isn't that sort of the assumption? If you come to church, we are the ones that love Jesus, or it could be people who don't go to church who don't love Jesus, because that's sort of the other category of people. We, we tend to, at times, and this is not right, break people into two categories. There's those who are far from God, and then there's those of us who are insiders who are here and who love Jesus. And here's what we're going to see today. There's actually not two categories of people. There's three categories. And here's the three categories. People that are far from God and outside, and maybe as we'll see in the story, known for their sin and their choices. But then there's people on the inside who are still far from God. And Jesus calls both of those groups of people into a third category to follow him. And so it's, in, it's, it's possible to be inside the church, to be a church person and not love Jesus. And today, that's who this message focuses on. Now, here's the ending of the message. It's not, you got to work harder to love Jesus. That's not where this ends. Let's be more committed to him. But here's where it ends, as we're going to look and compare two characters. I hope we see something in these characters, and especially the second in this woman, what she saw and my heart is, is that we see what she saw. If we can grasp what she understood, that God would work in our hearts to have a greater commitment and love for him. That as we see things from her perspective, that the result of that will be an increasing love in our hearts. So we're continuing on in our series of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Hope you've got your Bibles. Open them up, turn them on. That's where we're going to be. And what we're going to do is look at these two characters that you heard read. Simon the Pharisee and then the sinful woman. She's not even named. She's just known as a, a sinful woman, sort of notorious for that in her town. And where I want to start is just by comparing these two characters. I'll give you some character qualities of Simon, and then you'll see that these each contrast and compare to the sinful woman. But let's first talk about Simon. Here's the first thing I would say about Simon the Pharisee. Have you, as you heard read, he's interested in Jesus. 
You, you, were, you heard the story. Simon uh, knows Jesus. He's a Pharisee. He invites him over to his house for dinner. Many of the other Pharisees were seeking to kill Jesus and argued with him. At least Simon is having him over to his home. He, he's curious, but certainly, as we'll see, he's skeptical, but he's willing to listen to Jesus. And then in this dinner party, we see this sinful woman, as she's called, she comes with her tears and with her hair and with oil, anoints Jesus' feet. That's really all that happens at the dinner party that we know of. And then Jesus uses that moment, that anointing, and Simon's response to it to have a teachable moment. And he tells Simon a parable and then gives a lesson out of there. But the first thing we'll just simply note is that Simon is interested in Jesus. And we'll see the same with the woman. Here's where they begin to diverge. Simon engages with Jesus using his words. We see him talking throughout. We see in verse 20, this is sort of the crux of the issue for Simon. If you see verse 20 there, or yeah, if this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I think that's verse 40. But, but that's the crux of what he's going through. This woman has come to Jesus and is touching his feet and he should know better. He should not be accepting or associating himself with these kind of people. We see his doubts and his skepticism beginning to come out. And then later on, Jesus is going to ask him questions. They're going to engage in sort of a friendly conversation. Here's the third thing about Simon. He's interested. He's engaging with his words. He does less than he could have. He does less than he could have. There's some scholarly debate whether Simon was required by sort of social etiquette to have Jesus's feet washed. Best understanding is that's not the case. It wasn't a requirement to wash people's feet. And so no one at the table would have had their feet washed. And so Simon's just doing what's appropriate, what everyone else would do. He certainly doesn't do more than he could have. He could have had a servant come and wash Jesus's feet or wash everyone's feet. He he could have done it himself, but he doesn't. Just simply put, he does less than he could have. And if you're thinking of Simon as sort of your average church-going person, if we're bringing him into the modern context, don't you sometimes think of this in the church context? Oh, that's good enough. You know, that's good. We've done enough for Jesus. It's all that's required. We don't need to do any more. Here's the fourth idea about Simon. He engages with Jesus intellectually. Right? He's thinking about what Jesus is doing. He's pondering it. He's asking questions. He's having a chat. They're having a conversation. It's all knowledge-based. It's in his head. Jesus, why are you doing this? What's happening? Let me ask you a question. Let me tell you a story. And he's engaged intellectually. And sometimes in church, doesn't, doesn't this sort of ring a bell as well? It, it's nice to be able to engage with theological conversations, with truth ideas, and there's nothing the matter with that, but that's the only, that's the level it stays at. It doesn't go any deeper, doesn't get any personal, and Simon's keeping it at sort of this intellectual conversation level. Here's the fifth thing. It's a safe engagement. You know, at the end of the story, Jesus says to Simon, Simon, you didn't weep over me. You didn't anoint me. You didn't fall down at my face, feet. You didn't embrace me. And it's almost like Simon saying, now, Jesus, do you really expect me to do those kind of things? Do you really expect me to weep and fall at your feet and kiss you and anoint you with oil? And it's like Jesus saying, it's like Jesus saying, yeah, Simon, I do. I do. That would be the proper response to who I am. 
And it's almost like Simon's saying, you know, let's not go overboard with Jesus. Let's not get this, let's not make this too personal. Let's just keep it at a safe, intellectual level. Let's just stay there. And then as you sort of bring all of these together, it comes down to sort of one last thing. You'll see all six come up on the side screens. Here's my final idea about Simon. He's evaluating Jesus. Simon's staying in control here. He's in control. It's like he's seen Jesus' miracles, and he's like, Jesus, quite remarkable miracles. You're teaching Jesus, quite insightful. I'm impressed. And Jesus, I'm looking for a spiritual coach. I'm looking for someone who may be able to add to my understanding of how I should live my life and how I should follow you. And so, Jesus, I'd like to have you over to my home, ask you a few questions. If you could bring your resume, fill out this form in triplicate, I will consider you as a spiritual advisor. Simon's evaluating Jesus, and that's why he has such problems with how Jesus is behaving and what he's doing. He's thinking, I'm not sure if you're worthy to be my spiritual coach, my spiritual advisor. And we just pause there for a moment and we remember who Christ is. He is God in the flesh. And he's not someone we interview for a position when he shows up, he is Lord and King of all things. And Simon just does not see that. So that's Simon. Those are the six ways that I'm seeing that he approaches and engages with Jesus. Now let's switch over and look through the same lens. Let's look at the woman. I would say too, she also is interested in Jesus. You see there in the first verse, verse 36, she hears that this dinner party is happening and she makes her way there. Now you may wonder, how does this woman get into a private dinner party? As best we know, this was sort of a special meal or it would have been also maybe a public meal. It's certainly probably inside uh, Simon's home, but in these kind of situations, it would have been appropriate in that day for people to come in and surround the walls of the room. They could listen in on the conversation. And again, where poverty is rampant, they may be able to get some leftovers or beg from food, hear what's going on. And so this This woman hears what's happening and she comes to the dinner party to be able to be a part of that. She's not rebuked for being there. She's rebuked for what she does while she is there. And again, that signals that it was appropriate for her to be in the home or at least be part of that. So she's interested in Jesus. She comes, but here's where they now begin to diverge. She engages with Jesus with her actions. Do you notice that in the story? We see Simon talking in his head and out loud. She says nothing. We hear not a word from her. Her actions speak a thousand words. We don't need to, we know what's in her heart because we see how she is living that out and how she is responding to Jesus. Where Simon did less than he could have, this woman, here's the third idea, does more than required. This woman is in some ways notorious. She's known for her sinful behavior in the town. Best guess is is that she's a prostitute. If not, maybe she's an adulteress or in deep debt. Probably sexual sin as best as we can understand it. And then this woman does more than required, more than expected. She comes in and she anoints Jesus' feet. And just as you pause this for a moment, just think about this today as you see her response to Jesus doing so much more than required. You know, in our world today, 
you can get applauded if you give your life to a hobby. If you give your life to the accumulation of wealth, if you give your life to sports or to relationship or to a career or countless other things, the world will generally stand and applaud you and say, it's worth it. But try to give your life to Jesus and the comment you will most often hear is, oh, slow down on that. Slow down. Let's just take Jesus in moderation. Anything else give yourself fully to except for Jesus, we have to be moderate with how we approach him. But this woman is saying, no, no, he, I'm going to do all that I can for my Lord, for what he has done for me. Where Simon's response is intellectual, this woman's response is from the heart. I think she's come into the room there, and it's hard to know, but she's come into the room, she's listening in. Maybe she's already come thinking she's going to anoint Jesus' feet, or maybe she's just overcome with emotion at who she is. But it's not totally planned out, because she gets there in front of Jesus to anoint him. His feet are sticking out. He's there. She's there at his feet, and she's crying now, and her tears are wetting his feet. And I know she's not well prepared, because she didn't bring anything to wipe up the, the feet with. If she had a thought this through a little bit more, she might have brought a towel along or something. And then she does something that I've never seen anyone ever do in any culture. And if you've got a story about this, I'd sure like to hear it. But I've never seen anyone with long hair say this, oh, there's a spill. Let me get that for you with my hair. I've never seen anyone do that. But this woman with her hair wipes Jesus's dirty feet. She lets down her hair and wipes the feet. She's just so full of emotion and so full of love for Christ that she just can't contain it. Interestingly enough, in this day and age, for a woman to let down her hair in public would have been scandalous. It would have been much like her appearing topless in public. You were only to let down your hair in the presence of your husband. This was grounds for divorce. And so you see why Simon and the crowd, or Simon is shocked, but she's like, she has this overflow in her heart. I just want to honor Christ for all he's done for me. She's realizing the depth of her forgiveness and she's coming to him, her heart full of love in that moment. And then as Simon's engagement was safe, hers is costly. She brings this oil to anoint his feet, maybe more like an ointment, a little more substance to it. It's got a strong aroma. It, it has value written all over it, not only because it's not the standard olive oil, but also, as you read, it's in an alabaster jar, which is like marble that was quarried. So everything speaks of value. And again, in this day and age, a woman would have worn this vial around their neck. It was part of who they were. It was part of their beauty. It would have been worn as a necklace. And so think of this woman as a prostitute. She's wearing this vial around her neck that's expensive. It's part of her identity. It's part of her attractiveness. It's a tool of her trade. It's saying, look how successful I am. It represents her job. It's expensive. It represents her savings. It represents her future. It represents so much about her. In this moment, all that's caught up in that is so much about this woman. And here's what she declares. I've got something better to use it for. And she just comes and empties it on the feet of Jesus. This is such a costly thing that she does. And then that leads me to the last one, and you'll see all six on the side screen, where Simon evaluated, this woman surrenders her life to Jesus. 
her whole being. She is just moved to the depths and she comes and as she pours out this anointing oil, here's what she's saying in a very public way. I am changing the direction of my life. I am making Jesus the king of my life. I'm elevating him above everything else. He's in charge. Right? I'm, I, he's affecting my job and my behavior and my ethics and the way I deal with money and the deal, way I deal with relationships and the way I'm going to deal with sexuality. He's going to affect the way I, I think and my ideas. She's declaring in this public sense, there is no turning back. Jesus, I am putting you first. You are above all and I am surrendering to you. That's what everyone would have saw. Compare the two. Simon, he treats Jesus just about like any other guest. But this sinful woman gives Jesus preeminence. He is over all. And as Simon sees this, he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. He's appalled that the woman would treat Jesus this way. And so why is that the case? What makes the difference? Why is this woman so from her heart, so surrendering at great cost to herself? Why is she able to do that and Simon is not? Why then do some church people not love Jesus? What do we miss? And that's where Jesus goes. He wants to say to Simon, you don't understand the gospel. You just can't grasp it. And I want to show it to you. And so today, if you would be in the category or put yourself in the category of a church person who does not love Jesus, or if you're just in the category of a person who does not love Jesus, or if you're in the category of a person who does not love Jesus as much as this woman loves Jesus, what do we miss? What do we miss? What do we understand? What does Jesus want us to see? And so what I have next is this, simply this statement. To increase my love for Christ, I must grasp these three things. To increase my love for Christ, there's three things that we must grasp a hold of. And Jesus goes to teach us this in the next parable, 41 to 42. He tells Simon this short story. Here's what he says. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So you see there a money lender. He's lent out some money and he's owed one 500 denarii, about 20 months worth of work, 20 months of wages. The other 50, 10% less or 10% of that is about two months worth of wages. But here's what they both have in common. And it says it right there in the text. You see it right at the beginning of 42. Neither one of them had the money to pay him back. They are both in the same problem. In legally, they are exactly in the same position. They both have a debt that they cannot repay. And so here's the first thing we need to grasp to increase our love for Christ. It's simply this, the debt of our sin the debt of our sin. Both of these men are equally condemned, equally liable. They're in, there's no difference between them. Let me illustrate it this way. There's a lot of talk about home prices in Niagara and real estate values. If you own a home, it's a delightful conversation. If you don't, it's a worrisome conversation. But if you think in those kind of terms, you think of someone now who owes $2 million on their home. 
on their mortgage, $2 million. And then think of a second person who owes, just like in the story, 10%, $200,000 on their mortgage. One enormous, another one very manageable by today's standards. But they both are unable to repay the debt. They both are going to be foreclosed on. And so, for sake of illustration, I know this would never happen, the banker calls them both into the bank. And then, because he's busy, he calls them both into his office at the same time. And he looks at both of them and he says, I am going to come and foreclose on your property. You're going to lose all that you have because you have a debt that you have not paid. I'm foreclosing. You're liable for it and I'm taking it back. Now at that moment, the one who has the $200,000 debt, he can say this. He can say, well, my debt's not as big as his, right? Look at him. He owes a lot more than I do. And what's the banker going to say? It doesn't matter. You have a debt that you cannot pay. And if you cannot pay your debt, I am going to come and foreclose on it. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to Simon. To Simon here, Simon, you have a debt that you cannot pay back. And you know what sort of what Simon is like. We can be that way too. Jesus, let's make a list of sins and let's start with this woman's sins. And she's got a whole lot of sin. Let's list them out. And we can begin to feel like the woman's got a long list of sins and somehow our list isn't that long. But what Jesus is communicating is, is that if you have a sin, then you have a debt that you cannot repay and you stand before God condemned. And so the first thing we need to grasp is the debt of our sin before God. And then here's the second thing that builds on that. The second is this, the depth of our sin. The first is the debt. The second is the depth. And let me put it in these terms. Tim Keller, help me understand this. Think of Jesus in the story as the money lender. He's, he's giving out the, these 550 denarii. But then think of Jesus in our own terms. Think of what Jesus has lent to us. Think of what he's lent to you. He's lent you your birth where you were born, in what family you were born into. You've received from him your intellect, your skill level, your temperament, all of that is on loan from God. Your health is on loan from God. And if you don't believe that, just have a day when you don't feel well or a month or a year where you don't feel that and you realize how much of a gift your health truly is. In fact, if we are honest with ourselves and look around our lives, Everything is a gift from God. It's all on loan from him. But yet here's the depth of our sin. We want to live independent of God. We want to deny that everything belongs to him. We want to deny that he is the master, that he is king, that he is overall. And we certainly don't want to have to depend on him for anything. I'm okay. I'm a self-made guy, God. I can do this all myself. And we don't want to depend on God for anything. And we especially, at times, don't want to depend on him for our salvation. God, I can do just fine. I can get to heaven all on my own. Look at my good works. Look how good I am. I don't need you to be God, and I certainly don't need you to be Savior. We refuse to depend on him. We refuse to acknowledge that everything is a gift from him. But this woman is different. She had lived independently of God, but now she realizes something. 
She realizes her need for forgiveness. She sees the debt of her sin. She sees the depth of it, and she runs to Christ and experiences his forgiveness. And she is transformed. The love that comes out of her heart because she has seen what she was and what Christ has offered her. And that's where the story takes us. The parable ends. Now, which of them will love him more? The point is that when we see how great our for God's forgiveness is, it wells in us a love for him. And when we have no joy or no peace or no love for Christ, when we think we're good enough, it diminishes our love for God. Love always follows forgiveness. Love follows forgiveness. This is one of my favorite Bible stories. I don't know if it's my total favorite, but it is the story that resonates with my own heart more than any other story in the Bible. I've said part of my story before I grew up in a Christian home, I think lived a fairly good and righteous life. And even as I say that, I realize how deep my sin of other things were in my heart. But as, and I think made a decision to follow Jesus when I was young. But I, and I've said this before, I know there was moments when I was in church and I would see people and I knew they loved Jesus and I knew they had a joy in their heart that I did not have. And I would often look in on them and I knew they had something I did not have. And I couldn't figure out what it was. I just knew they had something that I didn't. But God was working in my life and moving me along. And so at 18, I moved to Chicago to go to Moody Bible Institute. I'm there as a freshman. And you guys know how this works in freshman classes. They just shove you in these big classes with the, with the worst professors because they just want to, you know, cover sort of the, the basics and everything. And so I get in this class called Christian Life and Ethics. I only remember three things about the class. The one story I'll tell you and two other things that, that the professor really taught that were blatantly wrong. That still to this day, I can't believe that was covered in that class. But anyway, I, I digress. So I'm in this class. I have no idea what the lesson was of the day. I have no idea what the theme was. I have no idea. But we got to this story. We got to this story. And the professor put up on a slide three glasses, like water glasses. And they had three glasses. And one was labeled sin. And one was labeled forgiveness. And one was labeled love for Christ. And so on the first slide, then he had in the in the sin glass, he just had a little bit of blue liquid there. It was ever so small. And then he said, if you just see yourself as having a small bit of sin, then you'll only see that Jesus has forgiven you a little. And then you'll only have a little bit of love for him. And then he went to the next slide. And the next slide, all three glasses were filled all the way. And he said, but if you see yourself as having all of this sin, Suddenly you'll see all of Christ's forgiveness for you. And then what will be corresponding is your great love for him. Amen. It's this verse, Luke 7, 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins which have been forgiven are forgiven as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And as that professor did that, God just opened my eyes. I don't remember anything else about the moment, but he opened my eyes and I saw that I only thought I had a little bit of sin and therefore I only loved Jesus a little bit. 
And suddenly he opened my eyes and I saw the depth and the weight of my sin. And I know I've said this before, it came over me like a weight and I just wanted to get out of the classroom and go and kneel down on my knees and confess my sin, but I'm a good polite Canadian so I stayed to the end of the class. Thought it'd be rude to leave in the middle. I don't know what I did the rest of the day, but I remember walking back to my dorm room and getting down on my knees and saying, God, I get it. I get it. I've seen the depth of my sin, and I've seen your overwhelming forgiveness for me, and he moved in my heart a greater love for him. I love this verse, Luke 7, 47. Here's how I remember it. It's like the airplane, the 747, Luke 7, 47. And anytime I feel my love for Christ waning, I go back to this verse and remember the depth of my sin and just ponder Christ's great forgiveness for me and I feel my love for him growing again. So here's the application question as you think about the depth of our sin, of your sin. How much have you been forgiven? How much have you been forgiven? That question should overwhelm us. And as I think about my life, I'm overwhelmed. I shudder to think of what I would be like apart from God. My words, my actions, my heart, my life, my mind. Oh, where would I be over the years and the decades? I shudder to think of all that Christ has has forgiven me of. How much have you been forgiven? And as the greater you see all that Christ has forgiven you, the greater your love will be for him. And if you put yourself in this morning the category of a church person who does not love Jesus or a church person who does not love Jesus as much as they should, here's where we return. Oh God, may you help me to see the depth of my sin and the debt of my sin. And as I see that, may you grow in me a love for you. How do we increase? How do we grasp What do we need to grasp to increase our love? The debt of our sin, the depth of our sin. And now the third one as we move to communion. Here it is, the cost of our salvation. The cost of our salvation. So if you go back to the parable, there was a debt and someone had to pay the debt. The two debtors could not pay. And so what happened? The money lender ate the cost himself. The debt just didn't poof and vanish. Someone had to cover it. And in the story, the money lender pays for it. Someone always has to pay for the debt. And it says, Jesus says these words, he forgave. He gave grace. So think of the cost of our forgiveness in this way. We, sometimes we think of sin as just failure to obey rules. And that's certainly part of it. But earlier I defined sin as living a life of independence from God. Just think how much we've done that. See the depth of your rebellion before God. How you've want to live independently of him. God, this is mine. See the pride sort of well up in your heart. See the insult that is to him that we declare all of his gifts are really ours to manage ourselves. And when you think of then living your life in that sense of rebellion before God, of independence rather than dependence, and then Jesus comes and he says this, I see what you are doing and I am coming and I will pay your debt myself. I see your rebellion and I offer forgiveness. It is we are rebelling against him, but yet he does all of that for us. And in a moment, we'll have an opportunity to partake of these things. His broken body. Why was his body crucified? So that he might pay our sin debt. Why that cup of grape juice? 
Why was it spilled? So that he might pay our sin. That's his cost. He pays the debt so that we might be forgiven. So let me just give a few instructions as we prepare to partake of communion. If you're a follower of Christ, if you've turned from your sin and trusted in him, then you are welcome to come and partake of this time. If you're in right standing with God and right standing with others. And so in a moment, we'll play some music and we'll start at the front and just ask you to come, starting in the front, moving to the back, come to whatever table is open, take a piece of bread and a cup of grape juice, return to your seats. And then once everyone has gotten uh, their seat, then two elders will come, read read some scripture for us, lead us in taking the elements and then close us in prayer. And then I'll come back up to wrap up our service. But in a moment, as the music plays on the side screens, We just get such a special opportunity here in this communion time. And maybe some of you have been convicted, as I said at the beginning, what a wonderful opportunity we get to say, God, here's my sin. And I just confess it and thank you that you died for me. And Christ has said he meets us in special ways as we partake of these elements. So as Mark said at the beginning, don't miss this. Don't get distracted. Allow these special moments as we sit and commune with Christ for us to recognize all that he has done for us. So let me invite you to come now as the music begins to play.
When we partake of communion, we read from Scripture, and we recount the event that is the basis of our salvation. And having just celebrated Easter a little while ago, we certainly know the significance of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, these are first-hand accounts, and we treasure them because this is how we know what happened exactly. But I marvel at the completeness of Scripture. I truly do. Because when I read the following passage, I marvel at the fact that these words were written 700 years before the event. And these are the words of the prophecy. It's from Isaiah uh, chapter 53, 3 to 7. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted by grief, with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In your hand you hold two elements. Let us now take, eat, and drink those elements in remembrance of Christ. And after we have taken the elements, Jim will lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are reminded of the debt of our sin, Amen. the depth of our sin, the cost of our salvation. We are thankful that Christ bore our suffering, was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. We pray for help to really grasp Christ's forgiveness for us for help to truly understand that the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed, and that through this understanding and thankfulness we would be drawn closer and grow in our love for Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you, Russ and Jim. You know, the, uh, the good news is it says celebrate communion, you know, until Christ comes. And uh, we mark today that we don't love him as we should. And he forgives us, but one day we will love him and see him for all that he is. And we remember and mark and look forward to that day where our hearts will be fully his because he will change them. We'll have our new selves. So we rejoice in that future reality. Let me just say a couple of, or one quick thing before I invite you to stand and we read scripture and say the four words we end with every week. 
Uh, one is if you haven't, you saw it on the side screens, a welcome time today. If you haven't, uh, it's a, one group that we run uh, just to help people get to know Harbor a little bit more. It's at 1230. Uh, it's a room we call the dock all the way and keep walking to the back. It's back there. I'll be there. Would love to interact with any of you who are new to Harbor. Uh, let me invite you to stand now. We always end our service with four words. They remind us that we've gathered, but for a mission. But before I read those, let me just remind you of Christ's love for us. Here's what it says from Romans. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that is our hope we, live with, we leave with. Harbor, we are sent.